HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're jumping into a world filled with fizz, iridescence, and deliciousness. We're talking about bubbles. It came from the air gas truck. Yeah, no, I never thought about it before that. And I think it's emerged as a bulbous tea shops, a site of Asian-American youth uh, identity building. We're called the invisible industry because these products you don't really see, but they're around us in every way, um, every day. Listen to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome award-winning writer Alice Randall. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Alice about Southern food writing, Oxford American's new food issue, and we'll hear Alice's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia is known for French food, teaching cooking on TV, and for her cookbooks. This sometimes overshadows that Julia was a very good writer. She knew how to weave a good narrative, and she was pithy. If you look closely at her use of language, it's, shall we say, masterful. There's also no need to qualify it by inserting the word food in front of writer. This aspect of Julia's legacy is what drew the foundation to support the Oxford American, the nonprofit quarterly literary magazine of the South. We share a commitment to inclusion and including the best writing about food. At the Oxford American, we support writing and video storytelling about food with an emphasis on amplifying diverse voices. 
This year's annual food issue, Out Now, represents a culmination of our mutual efforts to shine a spotlight on underrepresented voices and to bring the forefront more diverse Southern food stories. Joining us today is the multi-talented guest editor of The Food Issue, multi-award winning writer Alice Randall. Under her watch, The Food Issue is devoted to exploring the intersections between food and art and identity. In her introduction, Alice quotes her dear friend and fellow writer, writer Randall Keenan, who died last year. Randall wrote, For me, the hallmark of food and literature, raised to the level of art, is food interacting with character, food as character, food doing stuff, food being stuff. Just as it happened, with our flesh and blood, our mouths and our bellies, and our memories, the best writers, the better writers, know that food is identity. Food is alive. Food is us. I can see Julia vigorously nodding along. Alice Randall is a New York Times bestselling novelist, award-winning songwriter, award-winning cookbook author, popular essayist, and professor at Vanderbilt University. Her most recent book, Black Bottom Saints, celebrates the African roots of American cocktail culture and was nominated for an NAACP Image Award. She co-wrote the award-winning cookbook, Soul Food Love, with her daughter, also an acclaimed poet, writer, and teacher, Caroline Randall Williams. After graduating from Harvard, Alice moved to Nashville to write country songs. She is credited with being the first black woman to write a number one country hit, X's and O's, An American Girl. Search it up on your favorite music app for a listen. She received an honorary doctorate from Fisk University in 2012, and as a professor and writer-in-residence at Vanderbilt, she teaches courses on African-American foodways, Southern foodways, and environmental justice. She is dedicated to telling untold stories and reimagining genres while centering them on the Black experience, as she did in her provocative novel, The Wind Ungone, a parody of Gone with the Wind, told from the perspective of Scarlett O'Hara's illegitimate half-sister, Sonara. Alice joins us today to tell us more about Oxford American's new food issue and to talk about good food writing. Welcome to the podcast, Alice. Todd, thank you for having me. I love your podcast and I love being in conversation with you and with the foundation. Oh, that's so kind of you. Thank you so much. So you had that great homage to your friend Randall Keenan in your note to readers and that it's entitled Food is Us. So, so what does that simple phrase mean? Food is identity. In no small part, we are all defined by what we will and will not eat and who we will and will not eat with and whether we cook for ourselves or cook for others and how what we cook for others differs from what we cook for ourselves. Food is identity. It tells us about our culture and it tells us about how we think the world is organized and should be organized. And was that the approach or sort of the hat you put on, if you will, when you were christened as the guest editor and and tasked with filling the magazine with words and thoughts and ideas? Absolutely. Um, It's also psychological 
identity. So I was very much aware when I was invited to edit this issue that I was bringing my own experience. I was bringing a Southern experience. I was bringing a woman's experience. I was bringing a black experience. I was bringing a professor's perspective. I was bringing a mother's perspective. Uh, I was bringing many different lenses to this issue. And at the same time, one of the food things that food always does for us is to remind us of the common experience of being human. One thing all humans have in common is we eat. Well, and I thought that was really interesting, both in, in the title for it and what you just said. In, in some sense, it's very much an expression of, of big tent. Everybody, everybody can identify with this, which is an interesting approach because the Oxford American does have a certain narrowing lens that it, it, it is a Southern magazine. So it's meant to be discussing Southern topics, Southern culture, Southern identity, right? Yes, although one of the specific things that we work with on this issue is what is the South? There is, I was born in Detroit, Michigan, but mm-hmm. the part of Detroit where I was born, everybody was straight up from Alabama. And I like to say I was actually born in Detroit, Alabama. <laughs> and I'm interested in the up South of Detroit and Chicago. You know, many people say that Chicago is a Mississippi Delta town. It has been said that the two biggest cities in Mississippi are Memphis and New Orleans. (laughs) And I I do know what you're saying, because I grew up in Kansas City, and my parents are from New York City. But all of our neighbors in Kansas City were across the street. They were from Mississippi. And next door, their whole clan was from Rogers, Arkansas. Now, previously, there was somebody from Switzerland who lived there. But I felt like I got a very Southern experience in Kansas City, even though my household was very New York. And what's wild about that is, so we have the out south of Los Angeles, which is represented in this issue by Brad Johnson's wonderful work on a Los Angeles, multiple Los Angeles restaurants. We have the northeast south of Harlem, representing his father's restaurants. But we've got down south, we've got that the back door of the south could be seen as Central and South America. So there is a global South. There's a part of the South that occurs in military bases around the world in officers clubs that were once segregated as a vestige of the officers clubs in the deep South. So one of the things I look at is how the South migrates. No, and I think that that's something that people are becoming more aware of as there's more conversations about the the many subcultures and identities in America, that there is this mingling that everything is not one thing, but then often a lot of places that are not considered Southern were totally transformed by significant migration from different parts of the United States. Yes. And one of the things that's funny, you mentioned that you're from New York. Part of my Southern experience and part of my daughter's experience of growing up with me in Nashville is every year in the winter holidays, I send for smoked fish from Russ and Daughters because my adopted godfather, who grew up in New York as an active member of a New York Jewish community, would take me to Monday mornings at Russ and Daughters when, um, and Sundays at Russ and Daughters when I was growing up in college days in New York. And so I now have that shipped down to my daughter and it's part of 
her lived experience. And part of living in the South in the old days was that we didn't have this great amount of foodstuffs except for what was coming from the farms. And so we would sin for it. And so one of the things that I sin for every year are these wonderful smoked fish from around the world. But um, And I love going up to New York and getting it right from the shop, which is migrated again. But so it is very much, um, there's a feast at the Southern table that is continuing to evolve. Well, and I'll share that further. So I am a child of New Yorkers, but I grew up in Kansas City and my Kansas City friends very much, if you've met any Kansas City and you know they're very passionate about barbecue and not just any barbecue, but Kansas City barbecue. And certainly I've had that experience having previously lived in Los Angeles and some of my best friends there, and you import Kansas City barbecue via FedEx for special occasions. And of course, that's quite telling when white people are doing it because that tradition is very much rooted in African-American Southern culture. No, that is really interesting. And some of the wonderful um, beef barbecues that we get in the South are a wonderful mashup of Jewish foodways and African-American foodways coming together because it was said in the late days of the 19th century and the early days of the 20th century in the South, the best people who are most knowledgeable about certain kosher rules in the South were rabbis and the black women cooking in observant homes. Oh, I love that. That's great. And maybe to get a little bit more serious for a moment, I also loved a, a line that you wrote and in, in this issue, and you said, reckoning comes before reconciliation and often begins at the table. And I wanted to ask you, because I think that's such a perfect line for this moment and the themes we focus on at the foundation, particularly in coming out of 2020, but are we still in the midst of this reckoning? And, and did you keep that in mind when you were selecting the contributors for the food issue? We are very much in a moment of reckoning, a moment of reckoning that has been a long time in coming. Trauma is woven into the fabric of the founding of the United States of America. 41 of the original 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence owned slaves, including New Yorker John Jay, a prominent abolitionist, slaveholder, and farmer. Food trauma is woven into the fabric of the founding because many of the enslaved Africans, North and South, were exploited directly and indirectly as food workers, whether that was growing foodstuffs, preparing foodstuffs, building of kitchens, or working in distillery operations, or any of the hundreds of other food-related jobs that exploited enslaved African-American labor And that exploitation didn't end with slavery. In the aftermath of slavery in the 20th century, black women entered into domestic service, new and old dangers, from kitchen rape to theft of wages, from kitchen rape to theft of wages and verbal abuse continued complicating black women's and black men's experience of kitchens and food. As a poet, Caroline Randall Williams put it, who is my daughter and an author in this issue, you say farm to table, I say strange fruit. <laughs> yeah, well, with speaking of stand standout uh, writing, I thought her poem was, was haunting and beautiful at the same time. And um, 
Maybe we just segue from there to talking about some of the standout pieces in the issue that maybe you feel um, speak to this and, and also ones maybe that surprised you. Two of my absolute favorite pieces in the issue were, I will start with one that my students, I actually took this issue and incorporated it as the midterm for my course on environmental racism and environmental justice uh, this semester. But a piece that stunned me was The Art of Being Eaten Alive by Channing Gerard Joseph. The most dramatic part of the piece is he talks about actual cannibalism and an event in 1821 when a shipwreck, I am quoting him, destroyed the American whaling vessel Essex. The survivors resorted to cannibalism. The first four crew members eaten were black. He has a lot more to say about that, and I'm not going to give it away, but what I will fast forward to, he also has a wonderful discussion of the hoe cake, but it is embedded in a discussion about the cakewalk. Now, I've given many, many, many talks about the cakewalk. My first novel, The Wind Down Gone, is a literary extended equivalent of a cakewalk. A cakewalk is a coded parody that involves critique of the, of the white patriarchy and an assertion of a certain kind of black excellence. Very complicated, coded parody. I have done a lot of research on the plantation dance at Cakewalk, the aesthetics of the Cakewalk. I know a lot about the Cakewalk. And my very first paragraph of Wendang Gone signs to the Cakewalk directly. I did not know until I read this article that often the cake given was a hoe cake, which, as he says, is a mixture of water and cornmeal literally cooked on the flat surface of a garden hoe, was used as a symbol of Black Americans' ability to rise from the ashes, sweeter than ever. The actual epigraph of my new novel, The Wind Done Gone, is We Shall Rise from the Ashes. Until I read Channing Gerard Joseph's piece, I did not know the connection between the cakewalk and that narrative life metaphor. I did not know that many of the cakes bestowed were hoe cakes. They wow. weren't the only cakes bestowed, but this is important lost history. Amazing. And what what's his background as a writer? Is he a, va- a student at Vanderbilt? Or? Oh, no, 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 no. Channing Gerard Joseph, excuse me, Channing Gerard Joseph is an outstanding um, intellectual and thinker that you will be hearing much more from. Uh, his work is just extraordinary for the connections that he makes and... Um, he is a winner of the Whiting Creative Nonfiction Grant. He's won many things. And he has a, a wonderful new book coming called House of Swan, where slaves became queens and changed the world. That's just extraordinary. So he is not in any way my student, but he is someone that my students enjoyed tremendously and someone who taught me. Another I see. piece I see. that I 
Yeah, no, I thought that piece is extraordinary. And and what's amazing is it's not very long. So, so the amount of information and eloquence packed into it is also extraordinary, which is the sign of a very accomplished writer. It's almost a prose poem. My other piece that I love the most was Ashante Reese's piece, Terry With Me, Reclaiming Sweetness in an Anti-Black World. It is the opposite. It's a very long piece, and it will help you rethink your relationship to sugar. Mm. It discusses prison labor used in the development of the Imperial Sugar Company. Most of us, if we've lived in America for more than 10 years, have eaten sugar developed by this company. Most of us do not know the death toll, the suffering toll that went in to the foundations of that company. Well, it's almost like sugar's haunted because it's still killing people in different ways just from consumption. Oh, sugar, sugar and corn. I always say that corn is the most tragic food in the African-American food waste history. It was used in Africa to increase the fertility of African-Americans to treat people as a crop. It was used in the United States in the slavery period and now high fructose corn sugar are killing more African-Americans than almost any other single thing. So it has been a tragic, tragic food. Well, I don't don't want to go to break on that note. So let me ask you from the issue, what was the most inspiring or enriching or revitalizing thing that that came out of uh, for you out of articles in the issue all the contributors of the food issue were picked with liberation in mind liberation of the southern food story from the constraints of geography from the constraints of nostalgia the constraints of historical blindness uh but ultimately The table is a place of reconciliation. And a lot of what is best about that reconciliation, we locate in a section of the issue I hope we get to discuss after the break, the sweet potato and sweet potato pie section, which is my gift from Black America to the world, a sort of healing table. We're setting it with a sweet potato pie. We will come right back, I promise you, and that is the first thing we will talk about. We'll be right back with more from Alice Randall, as she said, about reckoning and reconciliation in the Oxford American's annual food issue. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. 
Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back. We're talking to the guest editor of the Oxford American Spring Food Issue, writer and teacher Alice Randall. So before we went to break, Alice was pointing out her treat to us in the issue. And I I was going to ask it a different way because I was somewhat stunned to see how much precious real estate in the magazine in this issue was lavished on one dish. There are five, count them, five full articles devoted to sweet potato pie. Why is that? Well, one, sweet potato is the elemental soul food offering that welcomes everyone. It's vegan, it's vegetarian, it's kosher, it's halal, it's everything. When you talk about it's very difficult for poor people to eat well, Sweet potato pie could be breakfast, excuse me, sweet potato, a plain baked sweet potato with perhaps grated pepper over it or cinnamon can be breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Mm. You get a bag of them and keep them in a closet. When you have sweet potatoes in the house, you have an easy, healthy meal. So one, I think that they are a universal vegetable that should become more universal, but it's more specifically a gesture of reconciliation. It's an offering of secular communion. The sweet potato was beloved by George Washington Carver, who developed sweet potatoes and recipes for sweet potatoes and uh, novelties and uh, improvements of sweet potato farming down at Tuskegee Institute. And the sweet potato there helps remind us that long before the current green movement, we had the old historically black agricultural and industrial schools teaching, farming, Mm. loving the land. In the fiction of Ralph Ellison, An Invisible Man, there are wonderful paragraphs that are memorial to the sweet potato he calls yam. The sweet potato is the quintessential soul food, and it's an almost a universally acceptable food for most cultures to eat. So, It's also, but it's particularly black. One of the divides, racial culinary divides in America, often, not always, black families eat sweet potato pie on Thanksgiving. Not always, but often, white families eat pumpkin pie. It's part of the recentering of the Southern food story on the African-American experience, but in a way that invites everyone to enter in and to move past the trauma into transcendence that I offer the sweet potato pie section. And I had a special request to ask you specifically about why Black people tend to not or don't eat pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving. Do you have, do you have a clear perspective on that? Or? Well, one, I would say that many, many Black people eat pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving, I have made entire you know, dessert plates and included pumpkin pie, pumpkin ice cream, and homemade pumpkin brittle. So many Black people do eat pumpkin pie. 
However, what I will say is sweet potato pie is particularly cherished. Um, some thought is that though the sweet potato and the African yam are not the same uh, vegetable at all, mm-hmm. root vegetable, that they one re- can recall the other. Mm-hmm. And so that it may be something that connects all the way back to a sense of Africa, a translation of Africa. We don't know this for sure, but... We do know that the sweet potato was widely available in during the period of slavery in the South, and it was beloved after uh, the end of slavery, and that it has been eaten, migrated with African Americans all around the country and all around the world. I have made versions of my sweet potatoes in Tokyo when I spent a Thanksgiving there using the very different Japanese sweet potato. But a sweet potato pie is never completely simple. One of the things I love about the Eugenia Collier short fiction there, which I say is a blues, it converts pain to beauty, the same way a delicious sweet potato pie with the sweet potato that we can remember dug in slavery converts pain to delicious taste. But is never simple because moving from trauma to transcendence is never easy. It's always a miracle. It is a gift. So these wonderful pies, and I will take, there's a wonderful old Seder story since we've just gotten through Easter and Seder that I love. <laughs> the song from my childhood. You bought, and, bought, bought your rabbi and, and pit master back together. No, behold this bread, bread of affliction baked in the wilderness. Behold, you know, but it's wanderer's bread. Mm. But right now it's celebration bread. It's celebration that we came to this present moment. The sweet potato pie is promise that tomorrow will be better than today. Well, and it, that that's such an interesting connection, especially given that it's Passover, Easter, and, and also Ramadan season, and that for people who don't know or might not have lots of Jewish friends or have ever been to a Seder, a, a Seder is a commemoration of the escape from slavery of Jewish people in Egypt, and matzah, or unleavened bread, is eaten in recognition for what had to be done for that escape, and it's both a deprivation and a celebration of that uh, freedom. And are you making a—it's not exactly the same, but a kind of analogy with sweet potato pie as a, a food of celebration of survival? Absolutely, because you can make a sweet potato pie with just literally the mashed sweet potato, as I said, and pepper, or just the mashed sweet potato and nothing else. There are many ways to add things to it now, but it is by Matt, it is a food about making something out of nothing at all, and it is a food that can be um, a celebration of, of both grit and ingenuity. So great. Okay, I don't want to lose this moment to pick your brain about something that is fascinating me right now that I thought you're sort of uniquely positioned, which is not covered in the food issue and is not specifically a food story. But it's striking me, and I'm, yes, absolutely thinking about what's going on in Georgia right now, which is you know, two parts of this dialectic of of change and, and transformation and pushback, strong pushback. And I, I wanted to know, given your perspective as someone who came from Detroit, has lived in Nashville a long time, and as a black woman, 
and someone who studies society as well. What is it that is, despite the the, the obvious examples of entrenched racial discrimination, that is also drawing Black folks back to the South? How do you how do you put that together? Well, first of all, I would like to note that Donald Trump, one of the great and most notorious racists of our time, was born and raised in New York. And as Malcolm X famously said, and Ralph Eubanks quotes in his new memoir, A Place Called Mississippi, as far as I am concerned, Mississippi is anywhere south of the Canadian border. <laughs> racism and benefiting from racism happens all over America. My own alma mater, Harvard, where my own daughter attended, benefited literally financially from the slave trade. Georgetown University stayed in business by selling slaves. Although, so number one, so the South has a particular relation to racism, but racism is occurring all over America. And what we have seen recently in Georgia with the election of two progressive senators, one of whom is black, is that large numbers of Black people in the South create opportunity and create cultural legacy, cultural wealth. That there is literally by the large numbers of Black people in Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, when those people can vote, when there really is one person, one vote, there's Black power Black political power down south. And what I like to think, remember I told you I was born in Detroit, Alabama. Mm -hmm. That three cities, Atlanta, Detroit, and Philadelphia. But in many cases, Southerners migrating to those two other cities. In the case of Detroit, Detroit put Michigan on its back, I think, and turned America into a new direction. So I think, though, we see the possibility with what has happened in Georgia, what can happen in Mississippi. With the Internet, people in small counties, large numbers of Black people who are living out in the rural world that was hard to mobilize before, can get mobilized. And so... What we're seeing here is a change that it can be that it's easier in those places for Black people to be important participants in the election that is statewide as opposed to local. Up until now, the focus has been on individual races. But now there can be a new thought. There may be a way to get, if we do not have disruption of voting, if we don't have interfering, interference with voting, to have more voices heard and more equity achieved. And it's interesting that one, at the table we eat and we drink. And the two most important things we drink at the table are water and frankly wine, libations. That part of the way in which people want to disrupt voting is to deprive human beings of water. Yeah, I think that, that that definitely stood out to me as one of the most astounding provisions that hopefully will not be, well, hopefully the easiest to contest is not a, singularly not appropriate. Well, thank you very much for that um, 
explanation. I think that's really helpful and really good food for thought. And I want to turn it back to food and kind of talk about another provocative topic, which is, I think, something that, again, in 2020, very much became part of the discourse as the racial reckoning was happening in real time and then extending to the food world. Um, and I'm thinking now about the controversy of Bon Appetit and Condé Nast, um, the magazine publisher. But I was curious what your perspective, given all that we've talked about and given the food issue, that there's been a lot more consciousness of what a massive contribution African-Americans made, whether it was growing, raising, cooking, importing, what has become known as American food. And what's your take on, you know, is is it is it correct? Should we be saying that American food is African-American food and there, there really isn't a separation? I think what we should focus on is how African all Americans are. There are clearly separations. What hasn't been recognized and respected is the extraordinary amount of uh, African and African-American influence on the aesthetics of food, even in our culinary grammar. Uh, and it hasn't been the expertise that they were bringing from even beekeeping, that honey beekeeping practices of the Americas are influenced by European beekeeping ways that has been acknowledged, but also by African beekeeping ways and indigenous people beekeeping ways, that they come together so I think it's important to recognize how African all Americans are and how African um, our foodways have been. It's also important to recognize that beyond these the obvious separations and the obvious inequities, that Black people have contributed to almost all foodways that we know of in the United States, that from the... Um, knowledge about growing seasons and crop rotation or the labor, the um, use of prison labor of black people to create sugar that directly and indirectly, it is hard to um, focus on to spotlight a food that has not been touched somewhere along the way by African hands in these Americas, directly or indirectly. Well, and that's such a powerful thought because of the statistical numbers, right, of Black people in America are still a small—they are literally a minority, but have, in many ways, and maybe that's why it's threatening to certain communities, an outsized influence, whether it's an influence through actual positions of power versus just, if you will, cultural infiltration. It's it's in food, it's in music, it's in— it's amazing to me. Well, there is a tremendous amount of uh, African-American aesthetic excellence that from jazz music to the hidden influences in country music from Lil Hardin playing on Blue Yodel Number no. 9, uh, the Black jazz woman before she was a jazz woman. Uh, there is extraordinary Black artistic excellence in America. And nowhere is that more evident and more hidden than in our foodways. Two of the people, names I like to shout out, are Brick Top and Thomas Bullock. Uh, Thomas Bullock is getting a lot of attention in bartending circles now, but this is a man who in 1917 published a bartending Bible. Brick Top opened her own, a Black woman from West Virginia, one bar in Paris, frequented by Noel Coward, 
uh, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, and a host of African-Americans, including Josephine Baker. But then she will open another bar in Rome, and then she will open a bar in Mexico City where she employed black and brown and white bartenders. And yet she is not celebrated as one of the great barkeeps and bartenders in the history of the cocktail, but she is. She was a black woman having global influence on cocktail culture. And is she one of your black bottom saints? And she is one of my black bottom saints, uh, particularly uh, Diggs, who was father of the congressman who formed the Black Caucus. He loved to go to her bar in Mexico City. So yes, and Bullock himself is one of my black bottom saints. And each of the chapters of Black Bottom Saints ends with a cocktail recipe that is a riff because soul food, like many foods, is all about, and this is not my original concept, many scholars have worked on this, evolving and preserving. It's not just the past, it's the past constantly coming into contact with new foodstuffs, new aesthetics, new economic pressures, new psychologies evolving and preserving. So the recipes at the end each chapter are a five cents addressed to joy. The touch, the taste, the sight, the sound, the scent of joy. That's what food does for us. That's that reconciliation that it brings because it focuses us back on elemental joy and elemental connection a connection that goes back to a mother suckling her own child. Well, cheers to that. After the break, we're going to hear Alice's Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. Let us know what you think about today's show or share your ideas for future guests. To revisit Julia's writing... Check out the new book of her quotes, People Who Love to Eat Are Always the Best People, and Other Wisdom. It's out now in hardcover and ebook from Knopf. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here is when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Alice, what's your Julia Moment? Well, there are several, because I literally have to say that I am not sure that there is another writer that I have actually met that had more impact on my life than Julia Child. Wow, um, okay, I will, do tell. So I will start with the most dramatic and funny one. Okay. And then I'll go back to the most significant one. In about 19, sometime in 1978, I was at Harvard and I cold called Julia Child. I looked up her phone number in the phone book and I, she answered the phone and I asked her if she would do a semester long independent work with me at Harvard for credit. And she said, yes. 
Wow. And I started, I walk over to her house and we took up, my project was to look at 19th century American high tea. She introduced me to the Schlesinger Library. But to jump to the chase, the most important thing I learned that semester was not how or why high tea disappeared from America in the 19th century. It was that she told me, you think you're interested in food. You think I'm a food person. I am a writer and you are a writer too. She literally told me that in her own house. Oh, I love that. And, and and we did not have this conversation when I wrote my introduction. So that's no, I could not even <laughs> believe that you were saying that she literally told me, you are a writer. I had just founded Harvard Friends of Food, which was a short-lived organization because it was so successful, we had to disband it. And she shared with me her literal butcher. So I am that Black woman who was riding from on the subway with a giant stunning filet to make beef wellington on a hall out of a hall kitchen at harvard because julia child had asked her butcher to do his best for me but that's not as significant as telling me that i was really a writer that's not as significant as sharing some stories about her life with her husband that I will not go into. But my husband ended up, my first husband ended up being a State Department person, officer. And I ended up in Manila during the revolution. And part of how I knew how to be a wife of and still keep my own thing going was what Julia Child had told me. But let's go back before I cold called Julia Child and she works with me for a semester and invites me into her own home. When I was a little girl in Detroit, Michigan, both of my grandmothers were born, lived, they weren't born, both of them lived in Black Bottom. My mother was born with a little girl there, but that was 59. In the early days of the 60s, we moved from Detroit in 1968. I was literally kidnapped by my mother, stolen away from my father, who had to find detectives to follow find me and things of the sort, and moved to Washington, D.C. from Detroit. What prepared me for that new world? What prepared me to walk from my almost all-Black world of Detroit into Georgetown Day School, a liberal integrated school in Washington, D.C., and thrive? What was my only profound connection to the white world at that point? the Julia Child television show. (laughs) I had watched it on Detroit public television. It was my favorite show. And she had introduced me to a whole world that the moment I got to Washington, one of the things I wanted to do was taste chocolate mousse and could do it then. (laughs) Another thing, when I knew to when we were studying the Vikings, I made Viking barley soup because I had heard Julia Tell the gospel of taste the past by the food you cook in your kitchen now. Julia Child was my link to a larger world. And when I got into that larger world, she was my anchor to my past back in Detroit because Julia Child on that TV was in my all black world. So when I refound her at Harvard, it was the first time 
my Detroit world and my Washington world came together in her Cambridge kitchen. So when I got to teach, no, when I got to cook and teach on the main stage of the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian with my daughter and walk, see through glass, the kitchen I had seen, the pots and pans I had held in my own hand because Julia Child had been that generous to me as to welcome me, an unknown 19, 20 year old into her home and say, you are a writer. That once upon a time in a hard childhood, I had three books. One of them was Mastering the Art of French Cooking. I can cook every recipe in that book. And I cooked with Julia Child, the one Julia Child and Company. I was a 22 year old who used to make Kulubiak from her <laughs> recipes. When I set up house with three boys in Washington, DC, when I graduated from school, Julia Child had given me with those two cookbooks. I also had The Joy of Cooking and the New York Times Craig Clamborn menu cookbook. But when I had very little and an extremely negligent mother, I had those three books to cook my way into a larger world. So that Julia Child would walk into my life. And what was wild about it too, you were part of the Julia Child Foundation. Mm -hmm. You've got to go back to 1978. And she is now a god in our food world and a god in American culture. But in 1978, when I reached out to her and she said yes, she wasn't recognized as a scholar. And so she couldn't sign off on the paperwork. The president of Radcliffe, Martina Horner, said she would sign off. And I'm not going to call the man's name. I thought about doing it. But there was a very important scholar still alive today who was over the department who could decide. And he said that neither of these two women, Julia Child nor Martina Horner, could sign off on that paperwork. That he, but he would do it because he was a very important scholar. Julia Child allowed herself to be injured in that way, to stand by me and let me do that work. She supported me in that writing, even when Harvard said, you're not qualified to say to sign this paperwork. Even when they told Martina Horner with her doctorate that she wasn't qualified to review the work. But when we had done the work, he said, well done. I've never spoken to that man since. I won't even call his name. But I call Julia Child's name because she didn't just write, do that TV show that inspired me. I'm not the only six, seven, eight, nine-year-old Black girl that she introduced to a large world. She didn't just write those books that were so well-written and allowed me to take eggs and simple things and have great adventures when no one was sending me to a summer camp. My summer camp, year after year, was cooking through her cookbook. Then she welcomed me into her home. And when she had to experience structural sexism, she hung her head low, didn't make a fuss, and did it. So essentially was doing it without credit and without pay. That woman is a hero on the front pages and a hero behind the scenes. And she is a person. She was the unexpected ally. And when I allied, I gave a lot of people in the Oxford American, this is their first article, and they all didn't look like me. 
one of the people, more than one of, that is new in this issue is a white man. Julia Child didn't look for people that look like her to give chances to. I am proud of the fact there are a lot of Black women in this issue because Black women experience a tremendous amount of structural obstacles to doing this and even structural obstacles to being on this podcast. To do this, I had to even remember this morning how hard it was to be 19, 20 years old and having some person, a white man, want to use the fact that Julia Child wanted to work with me and I wanted to work with her as an opportunity to say that neither of us were scholars. And one of us never would be. Well, that man wasn't right. But that story doesn't happen without Julia Child. So there is pain and there is joy. And I will never forget her reminding me that a lot of it is about how well you cook that everyday omelet that you make for yourself. So I love the Kulubiaks and I love the everyday omelet. And I am thrilled, Todd, that you gave me a chance to pay it forward and tell this part of the story that behind the scenes, she was even more extraordinary than she was in front of the cameras. Well, I am thrilled to have the chance to hear that really incredible story. And I thank you very much for joining us today and, and sharing all that you have and all that you've done with this food issue. So my thanks and gratitude to you, Alice. Thank you again. And thank you for all of your um the people who go into editing these things. I'm 62. The technology is all complicated. I, I, I'm good with my pots and my pans and my pens. You know, the computer's not so much. So I love all the grace, the grace that goes into making a place for everyone at the table. And I thank the Julia Child Foundation because you have that grace. Oh, well, thank you very much for the compliment. It is our pleasure Thanks, everyone, for joining us and for listening. You can go to OxfordAmerican.org to order your copy of Issue 112, Spring 2021, edited by Alice Randall. There are select articles from the issue also available on the website. It's at Oxford American on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you want to keep up with Alice and all her pursuits, it's at Ms. Alice Randall on Instagram. For more from the Foundation and about new podcast episodes, Make sure you're following at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The lineup for 2021 Santa Barbara Culinary Experience is live. Check it out on sbce.events and register your interest. For following us at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram, you'll get all the latest updates. As always, the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. That's a wrap for Season 10. Until May. Do catch up on episodes 
you might have missed. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next season on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.